so Bob, we were going to record a podcast today. And like usual, you come over to my house, you come into my, I leave the door open for you. You walk in, the dog accosts you, gets the sniffs in. You come into my office, you sit down, we hug, uh, you hug my wife often, and then we record in person. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then we record in, in person, but given all of the COVID scares, uh, as you were heading over, I told my wife, oh, by the way, Bob's coming to record. And she said something like, well, isn't that like not a good idea? And I was kind of on the fence about it. And that kind of pushed me to the side of the fence where I had the instinct to tell you to stay the fuck away from me. And so I called you and said, uh, sorry about this. You're probably on your way over here turn around, go back home, call me on Zoom, let's record the podcast remotely. And maybe this is a way of modeling to people, look, you know, we're in the shit and you gotta, can't be in denial about it just because you're trying to be polite to people, right, Bob? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, Yeah, no problem, I don't mind this, this is okay. Yeah. Sounds okay, so. I mean, are you worried at all about the coronavirus? Oh, um, I probably worried um, some, but I, you know, I wash my hands probably 15 times a day and we wipe all the doorknobs off here at work. And I, I think we do all the things that you're supposed to do. So I sort of feel like, and I'm not in the risk group. So I sort of feel like my own risk is, you know, um, no greater than anybody else's. And uh, so I, that's a long answer. Yeah, a little. I am. I'm interested in a long answer. As you know, Bob, this podcast typically runs hours long. So don't feel like you have to be concise because I certainly am, am never. Um, so what are you doing? to? Uh, we haven't talked since the COVID stuff really hit the fan. So uh, what, what have you been doing? Have you been uh, going to the supermarket? How's your toilet paper situation coming along? Yeah, uh, we, um, we went to Costco a month ago, but independent of all this stuff. And I bought stuff for the office and stuff for home. And so, you know, Costco's like, I don't like all the packaging, but boy, you sure can buy lots of something. So you're good with toilet paper. Yeah. Yeah. Toilet paper, hand sanitizer. On the other hand, can't find it. They still say soap and water is the best. So I do that, but, um, yeah. you don't know. So, well, I like to do since, and, and the thing is, is as a germaphobe, and as someone who actually legitimately suffers from mild com- compulsions and obsessions and anxiety and panic, I uh, welcome everyone into my world. Uh, before all this happened, it was a routine for me at my university, since it was always available in all the bathrooms, to give myself a, a good double squirt of hand sanitizer, then wash my hands for 20 seconds. Because wow. I, just, I just don't like being sick. I'm not worried I'm going to die from the flu, but being sick sucks, man. Like getting the flu and, and getting like a cold, you know, that, that just terrible feeling you have, it's lack of motivation. You can't sleep. You're coughing all the time. You're, you know, it's, it's an awful feeling and so, and it's really disruptive too, right? Cause you, you want to go, cause us self-employed people, it's, it's like, we can't just take a sick day and like hang out and watch Netflix. It's like anxiety provoking to us. And so, so I've always been this. Do you ever miss pay? Do you get paid time off? Well, it's kind of at the university. You mean? 
Yeah, I guess that'd be the only place that's your employer, right? The rest of it's just you. Yeah. It's, I mean, I'm paid salary and it's basically like get your work done within the time. And if you need to take days off to shift your work to other places, you can. Like if I'm sick and I am about to teach, I might uh, cancel class and just move class to, an, to another week or something. Um, so it's not really paid sick days. It's just like get your work done, pal, and figure it out yourself. Uh, but 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 the I like that because I, I don't like being told what to do as people understand and uh, I like to have the freedom. <laughs> um, but uh, you had an interesting question when we were talking on the phone. Yeah. What, uh, why don't you re-ask it because I think it's worth debating here. Well, I was asking if it were ethical to continue seeing clients. So today is uh, Thursday, the nineteenth of March, and we live in Washington State and. Um, uh, in this county, in this state, they've closed all restaurants to like sit down traffic and the movie theaters are closed. So you can't congregate in a public place. And they're talking about social distancing. So you're not allowed to be in a group of 50 or more, I think is the rule. And they really discourage anything more than 10. So I taught my DBT class using, um, you know, Zoom um, this week and last week as well. But I'm still seeing um, one-on-one and clients and couples and the question I had was, is it unethical to continue doing that? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, either before this episode or after this episode airs, I will have some legal and ethics experts on the show to talk about that and other issues. Cool. I mean, not that specifically, I guess, but all those questions. So what ethics are you talking about? Are you talking about like human ethics? Or are you talking about your ACA ethics? No, no. Personal um, morals. Right. I mean, but just a brief caveat before we talk about personal ethics and morals is that there are ethical codes that kind of relate to this, which is that we don't harm our clients, that right. treatment treatment should be beneficial and I've never had to consider this question before, but it's uh, a question now is if I, if my treatment plan involves a element that could kill them or their family members, then that's uh, at least arguably a question of ethics clinically. Right. And uh, so maybe the treatment plan should involve video conferencing or phone as opposed to, to in person. Yeah. Um, I offer that. I offer video to everybody and most people um, aren't interested in it right now. That could shift over the coming weeks. They say you have to wipe down frequently touched surfaces with some kind of disinfectant, you know? So my office mate and I are in and out of the bathrooms and around the doorknobs all day. And so I sort of feel like, and we, we, yesterday we took out all the furniture in the waiting room and we usually serve uh, water and tea and we, we got rid of that and we usually have some kind of snack and we got rid of that too. I never thought I'd be a kind of therapist that actually liked to offer people a snack in the waiting room, but I really like it. It's, I think it's just friendly. Mm-hmm. Anyways, um, we got rid of all that for now and there's hand sanitizer available to anybody that wants when they come in, if they want to use it. And I feel like we're taking the precautions that they're telling, you know, if you're going to have people into your place, like the grocery store, et cetera, you're supposed to do these things. You're supposed to wipe down the doorknobs and all the frequently touched surfaces, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're, we're doing that. 
And there's still an ethical question, like a, like a personal moral question. Right. So I guess the elements to the question are, is it worth it? Uh, number one, you know, mm-hmm. uh, so is it worth it? Whatever risk there is, say, you know, on a scale from one to 10, it's like a three. Is it worth that risk for the benefit? What do you think? Right. Um, it's, it's tough. I was, you know, I was thinking about this before we got started today. There's a personal benefit and a personal risk to me, not, not a health risk so much as a financial risk. And, um, this being my livelihood and paid time off being a thing of my past, I have a, uh, a very understandable, but strong bias, um, toward continuing to work. Right. And my preference of course, is always to see people, you know, in person, I think, Zoom is a good stopgap, but when the crisis is over, I don't want to continue Zoom. I I, I like my people to come and and for us to be together um, in the room. Yeah, absolutely. I hundred percent agree. Yeah. Uh, not only clients, but also my supervisees and my students. And even this, you and me, this is this is fine, and it works. But I'd like to sit in the room with you and talk. Totally. Having said that. Uh, with all of the uh, Zooming I've been doing over the past month, and also, you know, I do YouTube Live on Thursdays, every Thursday at 2 p.m., and that is kind of similar, I guess. I'm communicating through video. Right. And I've gotten used to it. There was a time uh, six months ago, a year ago, when video conferencing was actually like, uh, repulsive to me. I'd rather talk on the phone with people mm-hmm. and often would turn off my video in like video conference meetings. I still kind of do that if I, if I have a, if they have the freedom to do it. Cause it just, I don't know. I, I'm just so used to phone and it's, it's comfortable to me. Also uh, being a podcaster, I, my trade is audio and, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. And so there's just something very comforting and uh, not scary and not vulnerable. I, there's something vulnerable about, about video, I think. And, uh, you know, back in the day in the eighties and nineties, when I had a video camera and I would like put the video camera in people's faces, like most people would run away today. People have gotten used to video cameras in their faces more. So they're still not quite enjoying of that process, but I remember in the 80s and 90s, I would try to film someone and they'd just be like, get the camera out of my face, you know? And it, it was so, it was just because of just how much it was unfamiliar to people. And I think uh, similar to that process, I've become slowly familiar with it. And, I, and so it, it makes, and it makes me wonder how familiar I will be in another couple of months. And then it makes me wonder, will I prefer this in this weird twist of events? Cause I used to, you know, when my university, they, they would talk about moving to online classes and they would be saying, you know, we need to start getting with the times offering, you know, maybe half of our classes online. And I'd just be like, Oh boy. I'd be like the old guy in the corner. Just like, Oh boy, here we go. You know, just destroying higher education you know, we're just becoming one of those crappy for profit bullshit institutions. Uh, therapy is in person. Uh, this is a human uh, enterprise. This isn't learning accounting or something like that. Come on, people. And, but now I'm like, huh, 
no commute, no parking. <laughs> um, when I take a when I when I was teaching classes this week, I would take a break. You know, there's always a break time, right, to, for people to go to the bath because classes are three hours long. And so I take a break, and I'm like, I get up, I pet the dog, check in with the wife, have a snack in my kitchen, uh, maybe even answer some emails. Uh, and then ready to go. Whereas normally when I'm teaching and I take a break, I just sit there in class and stare at everybody. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so uh, I'm starting to see the, the upside to this kind of thing. You know, I don't have to change out of my sweatpants. I don't even have to put on shoes. Um, You know, there's all sorts of things that you can get from this lifestyle. The the listeners want to know what you're wearing now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> pants or no pants? Uh, well, let's say that uh, I'm very comfortable. Let's just put it that way. Um, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, is it ethical to continue seeing couples and individuals in your office um, using all the different measures that you're using? You might even tell people, they're mandated to use the hand sanitizer when they come in. You know what I mean? Is that true now? Well, no, I'm just saying that would be another uh, thing that I think everyone would appreciate. They'd be like, Oh good. I'm glad you're requiring everyone else to do this because if there, if people aren't coughing or sneezing, then the virus is, is if it's anywhere, it's on their hands. Yeah. So if you hand sanitize them as they come in, then there's less virus in your office, which means, you know, less transmission possibility, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, morally speaking, you know, it's a good question. If you would have asked me this a month ago, I'd have been like, what? Of course it's fine. I mean, come on, people. We live with the flu every year. Tens of thousands of people die from that, among other kinds of diseases. It's, this is another thing. It's the novel coronavirus yeah, it's going to kill a lot of people, but you know, come on, like uh, it, it, it's concerning, but it's, but we've had these concerns for a while. And if we didn't have these measures in place before, why are we having them now? Um, if we have them now, we should have, we should have always had them. So, but, but now it just seems like one, it's looking a lot worse than it than it than I thought it was going to be in the United States, and also I think our our collective morals are at least temporarily changing. It's it yet to be seen if in three years we'll still be the same. I have a feeling we won't be, honestly. But uh, but yeah, it's a good question. Um, I. Now I think it's I don't think it's immoral at the very least, and and I don't think it's unethical. Um, the clients know the risks uh, that they're getting into when they come in. The risk of transmission is pretty slim, especially if they don't touch their face and wash their hands when they leave. Um, I guess people cry in therapy, so they might touch their face from that. That's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, I wonder if the virus is in tears. I assume it is. Yeah, it's it's it in like all. It would be. Yeah, it's in all your fluids, right? It's um, also if someone were to uh, touch the tissue box and then 
the next person touches the tissue, but maybe you should tell people to bring their own tissue. Or yeah, something. right. Mm-hmm. Or everyone gets their own uh, packet of tissue when they walk in or something. Oh, that's I don't an know. interesting idea. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how many of your clients cry. I, I mean, well, on a typical well, day for me, it's like half my clients, you know what I mean? At some point. Yeah. Um, quick side note. Have you ever had clients crying and they don't grab your tissue paper mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, tears and snot are like streaming out and you're thinking there's tissue right there. Like just like, you, like don't be shy, like grab the tissue. Have you ever had that feeling before? Uh, I never had anybody, you know, with the tears and the snot dripping out who didn't grab a tissue. They have that. You, you remember that old thing about should you, if your client is crying, should you offer them a tissue? Is that a sign that you want them to stop? Will they interpret it that way? Or is it a sign of, you know, um, presence and comforting and soothing? My office is set up. I have this really long couch. It's about seven feet long, which is, it is awesome for a nap, um, which was its original purpose. But anyways, now it's in my office and I have uh, tissue boxes on tables on either end of it, but they're pretty far away from wherever anybody's sitting most people sit in the middle, believe it or not. And um, I, ha- I keep a box of tissues by my chair. And I, if somebody's crying, I routinely will just grab it and, and um, pass it over in case somebody wants it. And I always have the question, is this going to be interpreted as some sign that you shouldn't cry or you should, you know, knock that off or whatever? Because, you know, in America, they still call it falling apart, which I hate. Um, or will it be seen as a source of comfort and support? And I, I, I remember talking about this in graduate school and people having strong feelings on either end of that camp, either end of that argument. What do you think? Uh, I think it's just being polite and kind. And yeah. my office is not set up in such a way that there's a coffee table with tissues easily available. Yeah, absolutely. And if your clients are so confused about who we, you and I are, yeah. So that when we point to a tissue box or say, hey, would you like a tissue, that they think we want them to stop crying. You and I have utterly failed our jobs as a therapist. Uh, <laughs> hopefully we have had many other messages to clearly support the idea that yeah. you are here to do whatever your body needs you to do. And if crying is part of that, then my God, please, you know, yeah. I'll cry with you. Let's, let's, yeah. let's, let's do this thing. You know, I probably um, have tears with my clients half a dozen times a week. Yeah, I can believe that. Uh, it's, it's quite a, but I see a lot more clients than you, you know, so it's, you know, it's yeah. Different. Yeah. Uh, and my, as I, progress in my career and become more confident, um, I too will tear up. I, I haven't full on, you know, there's different phases of crying. I of haven't like uh, stage three cried, I've, but I've stage, <laughs> I've stage one and two. Uh-huh. Uh, I do a lot of stage one. I find that when I see couples being cool to each other, I tear up. Like just even thinking about it right now, I was doing um, a reaction video on YouTube to a reality TV show on Netflix called Love is Blind. And by the way, if you're listening to this and you are interested in that, go to YouTube because I don't think I'm going to post them to the regular uh, podcast feed because it's such a visual medium. So if you want to watch me just react to different clips of the reality show Love is Blind, go to YouTube. 
And there were moments where some of the uh, couples were being very nice to each other and I would tear up a little bit. <laughs> um, what tends to tear you up? Oh, um, people's sadness, uh, people's pain. One of the things that will, can really get me is when people are in pain and they inhibit it. Mm. Um, I often find that uh, diff- uh, difficult. It's not hard to watch at all. And, you know, to be honest with you, I don't mind being sad. Yeah. I, I'm cool with it. Um, uh, often when I'm sad, I feel uh, soft and engaged and um, sharp, like sharp-minded, you know, not sharp-tongued. And I think these are good things at work. Yeah. Well, as a former emo, you know, we didn't call us emo or uh, goths back in the day, but in the 80s, at least in Seattle, we called them bat cavers. So as a person who was a bat caver and listened to Depeche Mode and The Cure and all that kind of stuff, um, and, you know, there's a line by Kurt Cobain. He says, you know, I can't remember. Is it Penny Royalty? It talks about, like, that I, I get happiness from being sad, or I can't remember what it is. But, uh, yeah, sadness um, is not a negative thing, it, it, especially in therapy settings, really. You know, it's, it's a releasal. It, it feels good in this weird way. Yeah. Uh, now, demoralization and depression are not great. I, I don't like those feelings. But sadness itself, yeah. you know, watching someone in pain and being sad for them, uh, tears of joy when people are loving each other is, you know, there's an element of sad. Inside Out has that uh, beautifully and poetically uh, portrayed as the child ages, she starts to have mixtures of feelings. And she has this memory of before when she was in Minnesota, I think Minnesota, and yeah. and she has this happy memory of um, her friends and family like uh, congratulating her and picking her up. But it's melded with this sad memory of, of her, I think, uh, like not doing well in sports or that she misses all those people. I forget. I forget which. It was the first one. Yeah, okay, so she messed up at hockey, but then later on, her parents were like saying, you're a good kid, and you did everything you could. You know, it makes me want to cry just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And it's a mixture emotion of happiness and sad. And uh, so, uh, yeah. So, yeah, um, I, I, it's amazing, you know, and I hope that you therapists out there, half of our listeners are clinicians, can... Uh, come to a point where you're confident enough to, or I, I don't know, confident enough, where you feel the permission to cry along with your clients. There's a lot of questions like that. You know, it's like, well, isn't it unethical to cry? It's like, where did you hear that? And crazy. Uh, yeah. And, and um, you know, you might have heard a, a teacher tell you that. And, uh, you know, they should go to hell. Um, now, you don't have to cry with your clients if you don't want to. That's it's not, it's not a mandatory thing. But, um, it, you know, if, if it, one, if you cry and you can't control it, like, what are you going to do? Like that's, it's just happening Two, um, what a wonderful thing to be authentic and real and model that it's okay to cry. Uh, you know, it, it always just, uh, I always say this, but you know, therapists are supposed to be the most advanced emotional creatures on the planet. Right. Um, and yet, therapists still are ashamed of their crying 
They still, most of them, apologize when they cry. They try to repress their tears. They, uh, you know, feel like they should hide their tears. I'm one of those people. When I'm in a movie theater and I'm bawling my eyes out at a Pixar movie, I, I, tr- I, I don't try to alert people around me because I, I feel embarrassed. I don't want to bother them. I don't want to freak them out. Whatever it is, sort of the shame that, that happens from that. And it's like, I don't hide my laughter. Why do I hide my tears? You know, it's just, it's just a, so God bless you, Bob, for, for being that sort of person. Um, but yeah, anyway, ethics or morals. Um, like I said, as long as the clients understand the risks, which, uh, do you assume that they understand the risks or do you explain there's a risk? At this point, I'm presuming that, that everybody understands yeah. uh, the risk. It's hard to miss. It'd be hard to imagine somebody. In fact, I saw two news stories last week about people who had been out of touch with um, the world. Uh, somebody was on a 12-day sit. I think it was that Jared Leto guy. Yeah. And then some other couple, they were out of touch for 25 days, and they came back into the world and become aware of all that stuff. And they actually, it was so unique that they wrote about it, you know, these people that have been out of touch. I think right now, um, everybody is around here, at least, is aware of what's happening. You cannot go to a restaurant now and have a sit-down meal. It'd be hard to hard to miss what's happening. Yeah, I suppose no school. while we're on this topic, if you had a client that you thought might have some kind of deficit that would make them uh, uh, at risk of not really understanding mm-hmm. the risks, maybe IQ or social isolation, they don't look at the internet or something, then it would, I think, be morally responsive to explain. So I just want to check in. Do you understand that by coming in, you are exposing yourself to a risk that you might get infected and that uh, can lead to severe illness and complications and you know, you should understand that you shouldn't have contact with people that are uh, at risk of dying from this uh, condition. You know, so I could imagine that. Um, I could also imagine uh, just telling all your clients, you know, just like maybe there's some announcement by Governor Inslee and you just forward it to all your clients. So I just want to make sure everyone understands this. I don't know what you've read and know that there is a risk and there's more education around here, you know, seek that out yourself. Uh, and so that you can make an informed choice about whether or not it's safe for you to come in or not. Be good to reinforce the need for uh, caution because we are kind of slow to get it. Yeah. Like what Wait, is what? it? I mean, we, we in this country, I think people in general, we're, we're a bit slow. We're a little behind the curve when it comes to understanding, um, pandemic yeah clearly okay well so i have some questions for you sure but before we get to that i want to actually a lot of people have been asking about uh you know coronavirus stuff and one of the biggest questions that we get is why are people buying so much toilet paper have you given this any thought bob no well not much thought and i don't know why they're buying so much toilet paper do you I don't, and I hope that sociologists will uh, study this, uh, uh, or maybe they have already. But I have a hypothesis, which is that 
there are there's a small set of home supplies that uh, don't have a diverse array of options. There's only one thing we use generally in this country to uh, finish the job of a number two, and that's toilet paper. Um, you know, when when we eat food in the kitchen, in the pantry, there's a lot of options. You can eat soup, you can have noodles, you can have bread, you can have a power bar, you can, you know, you can have eggs, you can have toast. There's, there's, there's a lot of options. And so when you go to the grocery store and you see like half of the food gone, well, there's still half of the food left. And if you had to, okay, fine, pizza pockets, you know, not my favorite, but you know, it's food, it's calories, uh, it'll get us through the, 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 especially the soup aisle probably is just, you know, pretty much stocked. And so when people hear about runs or they see shelves that look a little bare, it's like, well, there's other calories other places, you know. But there's one aisle that does one thing, and that's the only thing that does that thing, and that is your toilet paper aisle. The other thing is, is we as Americans, compared to the rest of the world really, are strangely phobic about our bottoms to the point where even though bidets are widely accepted around the world and are better for the environment and probably more hygienic, um, as a Japanese person, I you know have been introduced to bidets early in life and realized the glory of a bidet. You know, the thing I always say is, if you got your own shit on your elbow, would you just wipe it off with a, with a, 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 a paper towel? No, you'd run that shit underwater. Well, how is your ass any different? You know what I mean? Especially not to get graphic. Well, to get graphic, you know, your butt cheeks are, are slammed together. Like, you don't want stuff kind of growing in there. Like, you got to get up there and really kind of clean that out and, you need you need water at least, if not soap, you know. Anyway, so we're so phobic about that whole area that we just don't even want to talk about it. Yeah. And so I think that adds to the anxiety about toilet paper because people are just like, if I run out of toilet paper, it'll be utter mayhem. I'll have to I'll have to think about my ass. Like people don't even want to think about it. And if they thought about it, they'd be like well, we're all quarantined. I'll just take a shower. You know what I mean? Or we're all quarantined. There's paper towels. There's junk mail. <laughs> Whatever the case may be. Like, it, it's not the end of the world is the point. Like, you're not going to die. And there are other alternatives if you just think a little bit outside of the box. Um, now, I'm not saying people should go without toilet paper. but I, I'm just saying it adds to that to that fever pitch anxiety right. that the general populace has. Okay. So you have anxiety about butts. You have one thing in the store that does, does the thing. And then you, there's a, there's news reports because news likes to amp up, you know, they, they gotta have the, the fantastic story. And so, you know, just to give you context, I have no doubt that you have some producer uh, or some newspaper editor or something says, okay, Jane, get your ass down to the grocery store and get me a story. You know, like you, you have two hours. 
we got to be, you know, at the tip top of this, you know, news story here, get there, get it done. Jane goes to the grocery store and it's like, what's happening? You know, and some clerk is like, well, I don't know. Yeah, there's probably less people. Uh, hand sanitizers kind of low. Well, you know, what else? What else? Well, I don't know. It seems like the toilet paper is kind of low. And then, oh, and then, you know, they find the one spot that, and they report on that. Toilet paper is gone. And everyone watching is like, wait, that's a thing? Like, I have a feeling that if it wasn't reported in the news, no one would have cared. They would have, it wouldn't have occurred to anyone that there'd be a run on. So it creates this systemic feedback loop. And if you understand systems theory, you understand that there's feedback loops. So you have the anxiety, the one thing that does the one thing, the news reports that creates more anxiety, which causes people to, you know, the, the next time they go to the store, they buy double the amount. And then there's more news reports and more anxiety. And then there's quadruple the amount. And then you have people lining up just, you know, like ravenous zombies ready to, you know, grab the, uh, the toilet paper as soon as it's offloaded from the truck, you know? Well, yeah, it creates a, the um, perception of shortage. And so therefore we act like there is a shortage and we get anxious and we, we add to the feedback. Yeah. Meanwhile, there is no shortage because the average household now has five times the amount of toilet paper it would ever have. Um, and newsflash, new, you know, toilet paper is still being made somewhere. It's, it's not like it's a finite resource. And if you did run out of toilet paper, there are other ways of cleaning your ass. <laughs> Just here to tell you. Do you own a bidet? I do. Yeah. And, and I was a college student who couldn't afford toilet paper sometimes. Right. So, you know, uh, we, had a, we had a saying in college that I won't, um, you know, uh, gross you out with, but uh, we said, oh, no toilet paper. And then we said our, you know, me and my roommates, you, you knew yeah. all the guys I lived with. Your plan uh, B. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was plan B. And so... Um, <laughs> I mean, have you ever done plan B before? <laughs> well, I, I probably have my own version of that. I was never in, in a frat. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, honestly, in the fraternity at college, we never ran out of Oh, right, paper. right. That's right. That's different. Yeah, because the organi- you know, the guy in the frat who bought all the stuff, he was just another student. Right. Uh, he... Uh, would buy huge bulk of things. But when you're living in an apartment with like two other guys and you're just, you know, the $5 or whatever it is to buy like a few rolls of toilet paper is like a pretty big, you know, hardship. Um, you, you know, you have to make do with other kinds of things. Anyway, so that's my hypothesis. It's a systemic uh, phenomenon that is explained by phobia about our butts in our society the fact that only one thing does one thing and news reports. And then it, it just feeds back. It could have been anything like, it, like if, uh, if it was, I don't know, what else do people tend to use a lot of like coffee? If it like say yeah. coffee eggs, uh, but I imagine coffee would be worse though. You know what I mean? Cause people need their caffeine. So, <laughs> You know, like we can't go to Starbucks because you can't, you can't go out. So imagine if Jane goes down and for whatever reason, that one, you know, grocery store, there's a little section there, all the, all the Starbucks coffee, 
uh, the ground coffee is gone. And she makes that report and, you know, all the people that, you know, there's one thing that does one thing and that's caffeine. There, you, can't, you can't drink alcohol to satisfy your caffeine or it could have been alcohol. It could have been like, mm-hmm. you know, half the beer is gone and then that it would have created, I, I have no doubt that there would have been a similar thing. And, and it, so it, it could have been anything. Um, and so uh, while we're on this topic, people, um, do not hoard your shit. Uh, it's not cool. Yeah. Uh, uh, buy what you need and be nice to each other at the same time. Yeah. Uh, be so, a conscientious uh, consumer of the news, man. These, these news outlets exist to make money because they're businesses and the business model is produce stories. But it yeah. doesn't mean that what you're reading is actually... Um, the bare bones fact and not colored by perception. And I'm not talking about fake news. That's a loaded term. I don't even mean that. I mean that um, CNN and Fox and all of them exist. Uh, they are businesses. Right. Yeah. And uh, maybe not even watch them. Maybe get your, no, your, yeah. your news from other places. I actually get my news from, from Reddit. Um, I find because in, on Reddit, one of the coolest things on Reddit is that, uh, you know, someone will post an article and if it gets upvoted, it, you know, tends to rise to the top of the, of the you know, picks. And so uh, when I read an article, I'll see a headline, I'll be like, Oh, whoa. But then I immediately go to the comments because very smart people will either support or elaborate or even refute. And so I always look to the comments and then the comments that are, uh, good tend to get upvoted and again, tend to rise to the top. And so, um, there I, you know, I'll see a head like, Oh shit. And then I go to the comments and they're like, well, actually like one of the headlines that, uh, was on in the news was that the coronavirus can live in the air for like a few days or something right. like this. And as someone who understands physics and biology, at least a little bit, I was skeptical of that because that didn't make any sense to me and it wasn't in line with what other experts were saying. So I looked in the comments and long story short, I, I don't know the details, but off the top of my head, but some expert in the field commented and said, actually the headline is misleading because blah, blah, blah. Um, and you shouldn't have to worry. I mean, if someone coughs or sneezes uh, close to you, then that's a problem. But if someone coughed or sneezed yesterday <laughs> um, in, in that area, there's no chance that the aerosol or the droplets of water that have the virus in it are still in the air. There's just, there's no chance, even though the headline basically intimates that. Um, and uh, if I was just watching, you know, Fox News or CNN or something, I, I don't have that ability to kind of uh, find an expert who really knows what they're talking. And that's the amazing thing about Reddit is like <clears throat> some of the most intelligent uh, scientists are frequently commenting on there, which is great. And now as I, as I proceed to cough, <coughs> um, it's just that I had my coffee go down the wrong tube. <coughs> All right. Well, if I were there, I'd be sweating it. Yeah. An Asian coughing run. Um, so any final things on coronavirus and, and, uh, butts before we move on to questions for Bob from on Facebook, I have nothing to add to the virus and butts talk. Okay. So let's take a break and we get back. Let's move, move away from butts. Okay. What do you say? I, I agree.
All right, people, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, please do so now. Go to patreon.com, become a patron. That's how we know you love us. And another way we know you love us is if you become an upper tier patron, that you don't just be the, the lower tier. So even if you're a current patron, it always warms the cockles. Is that the phrase? That is cockles? the phrase, yeah. Uh, what is a cockle? Is that, I always think cockles are like your, your jowls. Or is they the say, cockle, cockles in your stomach? Well, they say it warms the cockles of my heart is the actual expression, but I don't know what a cockle is. Cockles of my heart. You know, I'm going to look it up. Uh, cockles of my heart. Uh, cockles. What warm the cockles of my heart? Correctly, see. Da, 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 da. That's just the definition. Um, what is cockle? Oh. One of the innermost feelings, the expression of the cockles, uh, doesn't really help. Uh, where are the cockles located? There are more than 205 living species of cockles. What? That's, a, that's an animal. What does it mean when some subcosmic? So uh, I'm not going to find this. Uh, what are you what what on? on? Uh, let's see. I, I, I'm, just on, I'm just on Google, I guess. Um, well, now we got to find out, right? Well, yeah, go to, go to dictionary.com. That. Well, Wiktionary. How about Wiktionary? I don't know what that is. Uh, let's see. First, corruption, cocculi. Uh, uh, who knows? It's one of the most lovely idioms, isn't it? Something that warms the cockles of one's heart induces a glow of pleasure, sympathy, affection, or some similar emotion. What gets warmed is the innermost part of one's being. It's not that surprising that it should be associated with the heart. That that being the presumed seat of the emotions for most people. But what are cockles? We are not sure, says this wide world of words website. We do not know the expression. We do, we do know that the expression turns up first in the middle of the 17th century. It sounds like an old saying, doesn't it, Bob? Yes. And that the earliest form to the idiom was rejoice the cockles of one's heart. Cockles are a type of bivalve mollusk, once a staple part of the diet for many British people. Uh, oh. they, are, they are frequently heart-shaped. Heart-shaped. Radially with, ribbed, ribbed valves. Yeah. It may be that the shape of the spiral ribbing of the ventricles of the heart reminded surgeons of the two valves of the cockle but I can't find an example of the word cockle being applied to the heart outside this expression, which makes me suspicious of this explanation. It may be that the shape of the cockle shell suggested the heart as it so obviously does, given the rise, blah, blah, blah. Interesting. We don't know. Uh, yeah, well, lost in time. Go. Yeah, lost in time. Uh, that is a song by uh, uh, Huey Lewis that was in the movie Back to the Future, Lost in Time, wasn't that? Anyway, question for Bob here uh, from Joel on Facebook. What makes close relationships worthwhile to you? Did I ask you this last time? I don't, I don't think recall I this question. What makes close relationships worthwhile to you? Now, mm -hmm. yeah. Now, I asked people on Facebook, let me, you know, give me questions for Bob. I imagine Joel, you know, really connects with you. He really mm -hmm. likes you. And he's like, you know, Bob talks about his close relationship with Colleen and with uh, Kirk. And, uh, I, you know, I relate to him a lot. And I'm guessing Joel is just like, I just want Bob to talk about, you know, what close relationships mean to him and, and why it's a good thing. 
That's oh, an interesting question. You know, um, in uh, the late 90s, I uh, flew home for Christmas and I landed on Christmas morning. It was a red-eye flight and I met my dad at the airport and he said, do you want me to bring anything? And I said, yeah, bring a couple beers and a donut. And we ended up standing in the parking garage at the Philadelphia airport. He didn't want a beer. It was seven in the morning, having a beer and eating a donut and talking. And it was at a time in life when I was dating somebody and I did the thing that I used to do back then, which is date and run. So I had this really kind of intense encounter with a person and then I retreated. And so I'm standing in the, in, in the airport and recognizing that me and my dad are a lot alike. And I asked him, why'd you stay with my mother? They were married. He's passed on now, but they were married for 51 years because I know it's, I said to him, because I know it's really hard for you. And I don't actually remember what he said. Um, but it sort of popped into my mind when Joel was asking his question, what makes, what did he say? What makes, why do you see close relationships or what? why are, why are close relationships worthwhile to you? Worthwhile. Well, that's a really good question, Joel. And, and I'd like to have a good articulate answer. But wait, what did, what did you, you don't remember what your dad said to that question? No, I actually don't remember what he said, uh, though he did, he did say it was worth it to him to stay with my mom. And they had a pretty contentious, uh, you know, both kind of insecure people. They had a pretty contentious relationship. But I think overall, he really loved and adored her. And my dad was a loner. He didn't have a lot of friends. And he was pretty lonely and um, solo growing up. And uh, I think he only dated two people in his whole life. And he married the second one. I don't, I don't know, Joel. I, I know that they are. Like my friendship with Kirk, you've heard me say it many times, is really important to me both because I love Kirk, but also because um, Kirk presents to me a model of something more than my own brain can cook up on its own and my brain can make things kind of limited. And so um, having a good model of uh, expanded universe um, uh, is good for me and I appreciate. There's something about being with Colleen that just, it's not easy and we certainly have our moments, but um, there is something about being with Colleen that uh, feels good, connected, intimate, um, that satisfies me and makes me feel safe in the best of moments. I know I can count on her and I know she can count on me. So, you know, from a practical standpoint, I guess we've got each other's back. And so if one of us gets sick, the other one is there to pick up the slack and protect and so forth. And so there's that. But I got to tell you, Joel, those things don't really, that's not why I'm with her. I'm not with her because you know, it makes it easier. In fact, I don't know what you think, Kirk, but I think relationships can often make it harder. That's the best I can do right now, Joel. Now that we have coronavirus and we're stuck at home more, is that improving or making it worse with you and Colleen? I'm not at home any more than I have been. So um, oh. I don't say we have, we don't have more contact with one another. She's working from home because you know, that's the way her, her employer works. But um, I'm, you know, I'm still in the office. And I don't know the answer to your question. Yeah. Well, for me, it's better. I, uh, so, you know, there's reports of marriage. Actually, uh, some Rebecca Bloom actually sent me this article. And I, I think some early data are pointing towards a bifurcation of two different types of home life. One is, is that it either leads to more conflict and divorce or it leads to 
uh, more intimacy and more pregnancies. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was similar to another uh, situation in the past where we had to quarantine and stay home a lot. I, maybe it was during the 1918 flu pandemic. I'm not sure, but, um, and it's just interesting to think about. And I, uh, am happy to report that with my wife, it, it improves things. Mm. <laughs> I mean, we're home a lot anyway, is the thing, because we both work on the podcast together at home. Uh, I practice at home. Uh, she does a lot of artwork and she, she owns a, uh, spa in New York city in Manhattan. She works from home on that. And so, uh, we're already at home a lot, but, um, but I don't know. It's just kind of nice to kind of fall into a routine. We, we have dinner at the same time every night. Now we watch TV at the same time every night. Now we have similar morning routines now. I don't know. Anyway, um, I have an email from upper patron Veronica for you, Bob. Mm -hmm. She described a relationship rupture she had with her therapist. Mm. And then, then she went on to say, I confronted my therapist. I was very angry at her. I got nothing but invalidation. And she said her apology was for the sake of me instead of genuinely admitting her mistakes. She even told me that it's only human to make mistakes and she does care about me. All the people who care about me hurt me. I'm still not sure about the lawsuit thing as I don't think I have a chance of winning the case. Side note, I think in an earlier email, she was considering filing a lawsuit. I remember this. Uh, going on with her email. I told my therapist that I didn't want to see her again, and she looked hurt. I feel I am indebted to her, and I shouldn't have gotten angry at her because she has been very caring. She tolerated me when I yelled at her and when I slammed the door and when I threw cushions to the floor. I sound pathetic and I hate myself being like this. Hmm. I think I, I have already listened to all your episodes about transference and boundaries, so I know that things aren't quite right, but I'm already addicted to the attachment with my therapist considering I have almost pushed everyone around me away due to my borderline personality disorder. Also, I don't think I can find another therapist who would perform interpersonal psychodynamic therapy in my city with an affordable price. I fired four therapists before this one, and I really don't want to start all over again. Did she do something wrong, or, or is it just me who's being demanding, critical, and disrespectful? How can I convince my therapist to repair the relationship rupture instead of defending herself? How can I educate her about proper trauma therapy except showing her your podcast? How can I express my frustration and anger without hurting my therapist? Bob, what do you think? Well, that, well, these are a lot of questions. I don't think I can hold them all in my mind. And I don't think that you and I have enough information to, to comment on one in particular, the one about, what was the first one? Uh, first question? Yeah. Uh, did she do something wrong or am I just being demanding, critical, and disrespectful? I, I wouldn't know. I don't think we, we can know about that, um, answer that. But I, I doubt that it's actually so black and white as somebody did something wrong and somebody else was critical. Maybe you were critical. Um, and maybe she did actually do something wrong. Maybe she reacted to that therapist or people. And, you know, I, I remember reading this thing Yalom wrote a long time ago, Irvin Yalom, one of my faves. He said, somehow people 
uh, tend to idealize therapists and need to see them as perfect. And uh, you guys probably have noticed uh, they're not. They're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Um, and I make mistakes. And um, sometimes I don't have uh, immediate access to the humility and um, grace that I would like to have. So, for instance, I might get defensive. I, that has happened. I have gotten defensive with my people before. Um, and uh, I might have a blind spot. Well, yeah, I am a human. I think uh, it, it both it gives me great comfort to remind myself that I'm a human person and um, subject to um, all the foibles that the humans are subject to. Well, not all of them, but some of them, anyways. And um, maybe there's a wish that, and uh, the person Veronica said that um, all the people that I get close to hurt me, and the first thought I had about that was. Yeah, of course. Where else are you going to get hurt? Except with the people that um, you let into your world. I don't think the good relationships are characterized by never getting hurt. I think they're characterized by the quality of their repairs. So I don't know if it's reparable with the therapist, but it does seem to me that there's perhaps more going on underneath the surface. Maybe attachment wounds of yours, maybe attachment um, insecurities of your counselors. Um, maybe a little bit of both. And I don't think that it's your job or you should have an expectation that your counselor is going to um, talk about that stuff with you. Um, but if you want to repair it, you can always ask. The, yeah. worst, the worst thing that would happen is that they say no or or that somehow, I don't know how, but somehow it isn't reparable despite um, your best effort. Yeah, I agree with everything Bob's saying. Just piggybacking on him is, yeah, we we can't know if she did something wrong. We weren't there. Even if you went into detail on email, which you did, I didn't read that portion, but we wouldn't really know. It's it's hard to tell. Um, also, you know, how, you ask, how do I convince my therapist to repair the relationship rupture instead of defending herself? Well, you can just say that. Just be like, you know what? What's really going to help me is if you come across in a way that's non-defensive because that's what I need. So uh, if you could do that, that would really help me out. I mean, what a wonderful question you could ask uh, lots of people around you. Uh, the other thing is that it's possible that uh, your therapist is defending herself because you're accusing her of things that she has to defend herself around. Like if, if you accused her of, uh, being unethical, for example, and she doesn't think she's being unethical, then, she, you know, it's normal for a therapist to be like, well, I actually, that's not how I see the ethics. Now, if she's being defensive about everything, like she's being like, you're saying, hey, you hurt my feelings last week. And she's being like, defensive, like, well, I didn't mean to like, then, then that is not helpful defense and not really advisable and not competent defense but it's it's possible that you're keying in on your therapist defending herself when some of the things that you're saying to her it's almost like she has to defend herself on some level Human also the humans yeah also there's a difference between defending and explaining right like if uh, like i people can accuse me of things in this way and i can be like oh my god i'm really sorry um, I could see how you would feel that way. Let me explain what happened. You know, that this is why I did that. Um, I'm not, I'm not defending myself, but I'm just saying maybe it'll help 
if you understood where I was coming from. So it it's not interpreted by you as some malicious, negligent act. I, I This is, you know, what I was thinking in the moment. Um, that is a form of defense, but it's not, in my book, defensive. Uh, you, you also ask, you know, how do I educate my my her about proper trauma therapy besides just showing showing the podcast i just show her the podcast <laughs> not to push my podcast because i'm not the only resource out there but uh there's not a lot of great resources out there free that explain how to properly treat trauma in all of its uh, manifestations and 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 so or at least i don't know of any what do you think about the idea, though, that maybe the, the most useful question isn't how do I get my therapist to get training is I ask myself, what, 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 what am I hoping that will do? Like, what is my aim? I, right. I, I don't know that we should assume that the therapist doesn't have good training or um, a grounding in. I mean, I mean, I, I didn't see most of the email, so or the other part of the email, so I don't really know. But in to be quite frank, in, in, in my marriage, when I have attempted to train my wife about um, what she's done wrong. Um, uh, what I've missed in my, um, in, in my case, Veronica, my own narrow-mindedness is um, the need that's beneath that strong desire to um, correct Colleen. And, and, and if she were to take the bait and be corrected, uh, which has happened, I think it, it produces two things. One is shame, and the other one is compliance. And the thing that it doesn't produce is connection. We don't, we don't actually end up more connected. So I would wonder, what's the aim? What's the inside your heart aim of trying to, quote unquote, get her, get her trained up? Do you yeah. have a complaint about something that she's doing? Maybe you could just talk to her about that. Like, be specific yeah. if, you, if you can. Right. Totally agree. While I'll also acknowledge, given a lot of the emails I get that, and my own anecdotal experience with other therapists and myself, frankly, there's plenty of therapists who just don't understand how to treat trauma. Fair and enough. and uh, it would be nice if they did. And if, you're, if I'm a client and I really like my therapist, and this is just like one thing that I would like to change, uh, you know, there's, if I had a client who said, so I kind of feel like you don't know how to treat my trauma. And I have this resource that I feel like you should read. Now, I'm going to be insulted. <laughs> it's going to hurt my feelings and I'm going to feel a little bit insecure. But I'm a therapist, goddammit. And I should be able to be like, okay, calm down, Kirk. What's this person saying? I should respect them. Just because I'm the quote-unquote expert doesn't mean that they don't know anything. So let's hear them out. Um, let's look at this resource you know, let's give it a chance. Um, and at the very least, I would be like, okay, uh, you know, I'll definitely think about that. And thank you for, you know, doing that. Again, my feelings are going to be hurt. I'm going to be insulted. I might go home and, um, you know, complain to my wife about being insulted <laughs> in mm -hmm. some sort of way. But I'm a therapist. I'm trained to be like, well, okay, slow down. Um, you're dedicated. Your calling is to help people. And being defensive and insecure and prideful isn't, isn't going to help this. So, you know, let's move past that and, and try, to, try to grow. Arguably, everything I, or 
half the things or I don't know, some proportion of the things that I know about being a therapist was I fucked up and someone pointed it out, <laughs> you know? And if every single time I was prideful and I was just like, that's insulting, fuck you, yeah, right. then where would I be, you know? Uh, the fact that I know about trauma therapy is in part because I mistreated clients because I didn't know how to treat trauma. I didn't understand trauma very well because the few times I was educated about it, it just wasn't enough. And uh, if I, you know, this was like 15 years into my career when I was like, wait, I don't think I understand trauma and how to treat it very well. And if I had said, if I was prideful and I was like, I'm, I'm 15 years into this, into this field, I've been teaching, I'm a professor for, you know, 13 years. I don't need to learn anything like, you know, so, so, you know, uh, patron, if you should be able to just say, I don't think you're good at X, listen to this because I think it'll make you be better at X. You should expect a therapist to manage that. Um, you know, it's, you're not insulting your best friend. You're insulting or you're trying to help out a professional help you. Anyway, especially if you word it like, I really like you as a therapist. I don't want to change to another therapist. There's just this one thing that I think might help, you know. Now, in response to your email, I'll say this. I get emails like this every day. And I've talked about this before. I'm not diminishing what you're going through. I'm just saying that uh, I'm saying that I get emails like this every day to point out that it's extremely common what you're going through. And here are the common elements that I hear. One, or I'm not going to number this because I don't have numbers next to them, but there's childhood trauma that's almost always present. And you, patron, I, I think have had childhood trauma. I think you've told me that. Also, difficulties with past therapists. That's a, another common thing that I'll hear in emails like this. The next thing I'll hear is deep attachment with one's current therapist. The next thing I'll hear is there's been a re relationship rupture, either several or one current, and that's the, the current question and concern. The next thing I'll hear is an urge to terminate, an urge to say, I don't think this is the right therapist. I need to move on. The next thing I'll hear is that the person deeply hopes for reconciliation, even though they think it's impossible. The next thing I'll hear is that the therapist either reacts really well or the therapist reacts terribly. There's not usually people in between. Um, this therapist sounds like a good one. I'm not hearing any major red flags, but it's hard to tell. The defensiveness that you're identifying is, is a yellow flag, but it's hard to know since we weren't there. But you like this therapist. The therapist is, is still in the trenches with you. They haven't terminated with you. Um, so, uh, And if I remember right, the details you gave about what the therapist had done, it, it didn't sound like this is one of the bad ones. I, of course, can't tell over the email. The bad ones, what I hear, are therapists who will instantly terminate with their client after a rupture like this. Or they say like, well, maybe you're not ready for therapy. Or they'll have some phrase like, your issues are beyond my scope of practice. And then they terminate after a rupture like this or they start yelling at you, you know, there, there's usually indications that I'll hear from clients where it's like, oh boy, like you should, probably should run from this person. <laughs> like there's something deeply wrong with this therapist. I'm not hearing anything, you know, in, in, in this email about that. 
The next thing I'll hear is, you know, these people will email me and they'll say, you know, how do I cope with it and what should I do is usually the questions. How do I cope and what should I do? Um, of course, I can't advise on that because I'm not involved. But in general, for people that I have worked with, you know, professionally myself is to recognize that relational trauma is no fucking joke. It's not just like, oh, yeah, I have relational trauma. It is a massive psychological and physiological condition. It's not just like some, even if you know you have it, it doesn't uh, it diminish its rampant, like a bull in a china shop, you know, destructive nature through your soul on a daily basis. Um, and as you open up to this therapist because your body wants that, you become vulnerable. So you're putting China right in front of this bull. <laughs> you're putting more fragile things like, or right next to it. You're giving us very, there's a very narrow path through this China shop. And at the slightest hint of rejection, the slightest hint that bull is kind of rocking to the side, you know, left or right. All of that past trauma is engaged and it hurts deeply and you want to run and you want to express your anger and you do express your anger. All this is normal. If you want to heal, and I'm talking about truly heal long term, it usually means you have to do your part to repair the relationship and give the therapist some grace. As Bob is saying, it's just like therapists aren't perfect. You know, we all have problems too. We all go to therapy too. And well, maybe, that, maybe that means like, okay, I want to heal. And if I'm going to heal, I got to stick out. And this is a good enough. It's a good enough. No parent is perfect. Winnicott talked about good enough parenting. You're not trying to be perfect parenting. You just have to be good enough past some sort of threshold. And if your therapist is good enough, meaning they have some flaws that will never change and that's just bothersome to you, but they're good enough. If you want to truly heal, you have to invest in that and you have to say, okay, this sucks and I'm scared and that fucking hurts. And it hurts almost every time I think about that person. But there's really no way around it. I've never heard of someone who has the sort of relational traumas you're talking about and they don't have these feelings about their therapist. I've never heard that. When you have these relational traumas and you get close to your therapist, which you need to do to heal, every single one of those people has tremendous pain that, up, that upwells and becomes transferred onto the therapist. That, that's, we've known about this since the late 1800s. Breuer and Freud wrote about this 150 years ago, 140 years ago. It's, uh, and it has been well-established and well-documented in psychoanalytic, psychodynamic, object relations literature. It's well understood. We've kind of forgotten about it in our CBT culture, but it's, it's obvious. And now therapists need to understand, clients will benefit from understanding that too, right? To just sort of frame it like, this is the only way. This is the only way to heal, you know? Yeah, you can't... Um, you can't cure yourself of appendicitis without surgery. You know, you can't cure yourself of relational traumas without this pain. And it fucking sucks. Like I said, it's no joke. I'm not going to say that it's something you just sort of normalize in your head and move on in your life. It's like a daily struggle, like I said. 
but it's the only way you can get better and it's long-term. And um, so a lot of my responses over email to people who email me this usually is something along those lines of like, I get the pain, but it's part of the gig. And I, I'm sorry you're going through that pain, but if you want to get better and God bless you for giving it a, a shot, it just means you have to take the pain with the good. Any thoughts on that, Bob? Yeah. One of the central tasks is to survive for both therapist and client for their relationship to survive the uh, inevitable ruptures. Yeah. Not survive like, okay, now there's this scar. We never talk about it, but more like, okay, what happened? Can we learn from it? What can we learn from it? Are we still in this together? Is there still care? Is there still uh, compassion? Is there still interest and curiosity? Is there still risk? Fuck yeah, of course there's risk. Um, but it isn't, it isn't to have a relationship that never has rupture. It's as Kirk didn't say it exactly this way, but it's inevitable, which can feel pretty shitty if when you're on the, when you're on the, when you're on Veronica's end, I, I'm sure I actually feels shitty for the therapist too. I'm sure that person feels every bit is shitty. And to give hope I have been, and Bob has been in that therapeutic relationship with people for years and ever so slowly over time that security gets internalized the working model of self and other gets more positive the healing happens and lo and behold after a while you just find maybe five years you just find that hey I'm no longer paranoid about what my therapist is thinking about me. I'm only like slightly paranoid. I have a, I have a normal amount of paranoia, but it's not plaguing me on a daily basis. I, I'm really quite positive that my therapist ha- truly does have unconditional positive regard for me. And lo and behold, when I start dating or I'm with my spouse or other people, I just find myself getting less angry. I'm, I'm, I'm just not as upset about things. I, I do occasionally get upset, but I'm not as upset. Lo and behold, I, I don't have suicidal thoughts anymore. Lo and behold, I'm not uh, thinking about, um, you know, wanting to leave people or hurt myself as much anymore. And I've seen that. Bob has seen that. It happens. It works, people. It works. That's why it, you know, that's why we do this. All the studies, you know, as you say, Veronica, interpersonal psychodynamic therapy is the recommended uh, treatment uh, protocol for long-term recovery from borderline. You could certainly do DBT and cognitive behavioral therapy to help as well. Um, But if you're you're truly going to heal long-term, you have to experience, your body has to experience a secure relationship and internalize that so that uh, your body can trust other humans and yourself. That's, that's you know, uh, a very important part of healing. The DBT and the CBT kind of help to provide the foundation for that so that you're not having spikes in distress all the time. You're able to, to keep that down. You have a, you have better able to monitor your narratives. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're truly going to heal long-term, you know, I, I, I had a very formative client early on in my career. And after, I don't know, five or seven years, she no longer fit, met criteria for borderline personality disorder. 
and she had full blown borderline in, in the beginning. And um, I have received updates from her uh, over the years and she's doing great. Uh, you know, without going into details, loves her life and has fond memories of our time together. When we were together, she hated me on a weekly basis. Hated me. Hated me. I, I couldn't do anything right by her. There were ruptures minute to minute. And I stuck it out. And it wasn't easy for me. But boy, was it gratifying. And that's why I got into this fucking thing. You know? The surgeon who is working for on a 12-hour thing to, to, to save someone's life, it's hard. But that's the why they fucking got into the thing. So, you know, uh, don't feel bad for your therapist. They, they go to sleep at night going, my God, I did good work today. So, you know, when you put them through hell, uh, it's, it's why they signed up for it because they know this is part of the gig. The surgeon knows you got to stay on your feet for 12 hours and have a, you know, and not be able to eat anything. You know, it's, it's hard work, but it's so gratifying. And so, um, you know, I hope you can have hope. It sounds like you're with a good therapist. You know, uh, it's possible for me to know, but if if you think you have a good therapist and you think it's worth it, you you know, just stick it out and take the good with the bad. So any final words, Bob, before we sign off <clears throat> from Corona podcast? Well, just one. I, I heard Marsha Linehan say once, uh, well, you know, when you get down to it, love is the cure, which is what Freud said in 1938. Love is the cure. Yeah. Love so even the DBT the people, uh, at least the smart ones, recognize that um, the whatever the cure is, it takes place within a relationship with somebody that um, cares. Good luck, Veronica. We never introduced the podcast, so let's simultaneously introduce and say goodbye. My name is Dr. Kirkonda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I'm uh, Bob Gettle. I'm a therapist in practice here in Seattle. And this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. Everyone out there, please, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.